According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in uh, Proverbs chapter 13. We are approaching the end of the chapter. We're getting ready to cross into chapter 14. A week ago we were dealing with... Um, the concept of uh, in individual and collective applications. This was point uh, 15 in the outline. The principles of wisdom expressed individually are amplified collectively. And so it's a great thing with one guy who's living in wisdom or one woman or one person living in wisdom. Uh, two people living in wisdom is better. Uh, especially if they happen to be married to each other. So a husband walking in wisdom, a wife walking in wisdom, uh, that's, that's just a win-win. It's a great thing for a marriage. And you get three and more that are walking together in wisdom and you're just exponentially, you are uh, magnifying the blessings of, uh, of that. And so uh, we talked about having making right choices with respect to positive peer pressure, having uh, friends as well that are walking with you in this. Proverbs 13, verses 20 and 21, speaking about this, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Okay, and, and kind of joked a little bit that it doesn't just rub off by osmosis. You can't just hang out with a wise guy and, and have it rub off on you. But the point being, you're walking with them. That means you're under teaching, you're in fellowship, you're in a local church, you're growing, he's growing. That's what it means to walk together with. And, uh, and so you reinforce each other as you learn these things. It's an exciting thing. Uh, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Okay? That too speaks of companionship, speaks of involvement. It's not just some guy you know who happens to be a fool, but you are his companion. You are engaged in that foolish activity and you're doing those things and going to those places and, and involved in that kind of foolishness. And obviously we want no part of that. Verse 21, adversity pursues sinners collectively, plurally. Again, that's in a group application. But the righteous, that's plural. You know, sometimes when we read the righteous, we don't always know. It's like fish or deer or sheep. You know, it's one of those nouns that can be used of a singular, it can be used of a plural. When you talk about the righteous, uh, this is a plural noun. The righteous ones, the, the righteous group, the the fellowship of the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. And so th- this is the point. We spent much of last week going through these verses, um, not only from Proverbs 13, but Proverbs 2, Proverbs 12, Proverbs 27, a whole string of Psalms, uh, and then ending with Hebrews 3.13 and Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, that famous not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we do, uh, we're very blessed to operate in a uh, collective, collective way. All right, then uh, we're ready now to move on to verses 22 through 25. 22 through 25, which will be point 16 in the outline. Chapter 13 closes with a quartet of verses centered on families and inheritance. Have I prayed yet? I did? I did not. Wow, okay. See, I told you I was having a headache. All right, let's uh, open with a word of prayer and uh, see if the Father will keep the headache away and we'll just teach what we have. Shall we pray? 
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time, to uh, uh, keep my thinking clear, to keep the teaching going forth, to bless the students that are here to learn. Father, bless our time together. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Somebody sent me a Facebook posting yesterday with a recent study on some of the the uh, sarin and some of the chemical agents we were exposed to in Desert Storm and how the health effects, including memory effects, it's giving some people migraines. And, and they thought I might be curious about migraines and memory issues. <laughs> Don't know why, but yeah, I found it very curious. And so uh, now I got something to follow up with and maybe um, if I can get off Obamacare next year, maybe I can get a doctor and, and, and look into that kind of a thing. So Anyway, praying for that. Uh, for today, though, let's look at verses 22 through 25. It is a quartet. Uh, that is, it is a group of four verses that, that are poetically linked together uh, in the way that they are, and you'll see this. Uh, so starting in verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And, and, or on the other hand, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And that parallelism is curious because you got two widely opposite concepts being linked together with an and rather than a but. And it's curious to me because the, the blessings of God are going to His children in either case. And that's, uh, that's interesting. So we'll deal with that here this morning. Verse 23, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Verse 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And so if you're, if you're structuring the, the, the poetry, it's A, B, A, B. So uh, verse 22 is an A and verse 24 is an A, dealing with parents and children. And then verse 23 is a B and verse 25 is a B, dealing with uh, work and satisfaction. Uh, verse 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. All right, so these are the verses. Um, you understand what I meant by the ABAB parallelism? Okay, I can draw that out if I have to, but don't have to. All right, so as we deal with that, we start with verse 22. There, uh, You can look at uh, things either with God's way of looking at things or with fallen man's way of looking at things. Divine viewpoint and human viewpoint are diametrically opposed in their financial priorities. Divine viewpoint and human viewpoint are diametrically opposed in their financial priorities. And so when we're contrasting the good man versus the sinner, uh, we understand that, that that's two opposite approaches to how they, uh, what, what they uh, deal with, with with money, how they approach money. And that's not to say, of course, that you can have a a godly man who makes poor choices, or you could have a believer who should know better that doesn't live up to the biblical norms and standards. That's, we get that. But as a rule, speaking in general, a, a good man is the believer that's walking in fellowship, he's walking in wisdom, he's applying biblical principles, which means that he has God's perspective on his finances. And on that basis then, he is he is working, he is earning, he is saving, he is generous, and we're going to see that. We're going to see the verses that address that. If you are biblically oriented to money, then there is a benefit. As opposed to the wicked, on the other hand, what is their approach to money? And what do they store up? And why do they store up? 
do they store up? Do they have any sense of a heritage? Do they have any sense of their children and their grandchildren? Or are they living in a mindset that's every man for himself? Hey, life is short, play hard. You know, slap a bumper sticker on your car that says I'm spending my children's inheritance, you know, and whatever it is you're doing there in, in the, the, the thrill of the moment kind of a thing. And, um, and, and a lot of this gets, gets um, uh, very personal and it gets very convicting uh, simply because our culture has, has so degenerated and devolved to the point that, uh, that, that hardly anyone is honoring father and mother anymore and there is a whole generation now that is um, abandoning uh, father and mother in their old age. And it's, I think it's the, we're, we're now 50 years after the 60s and, and they've sown the wind and they're reaping the whirlwind is what's happening now on a, on a generational basis. And we're seeing more and more of that. And I expect that to accelerate in the next 50 years because uh, the, the degeneracy only, only gets worse and worse. So we'll talk about that too. But it's, it's um, staggering and when, uh, when I'm visiting nursing homes or I'm seeing these different um, venues where, where you can talk about that kind of thing, um, that you end up with a, a generation of people now that are so hurt and damaged and, and just angry over the impact of you know, whatever else, uh, the, the divorce the, the, the fractured home, the de- you know. So they basically view themselves as abandoned by both parents who, who wouldn't stay together and raise them. And now that both parents are in separate nursing homes, the kids are saying, hey, tough, you know. Uh, and it's, it's, it's horrible. It's an absolutely horrible, sinful, carnal, unbiblical way to, but does it surprise anyone? Is it a shock when you sow the wind and Scripture says you reap the whirlwind. And, and so we're seeing now on a, on a generational basis that's now being multiplied to the third and to the fourth generation. In any event. Uh, let's start with the righteous side of things here. The good man works, produces, and blesses others on an intergenerational scope. From the first to the second to the third generation. And there's concepts here that I find remarkable that we'll, uh, we'll expand upon it and then we'll look at these verses. But the point is, the good man works, produces, and blesses others. When he leaves an inheritance to his children's children, that didn't just happen overnight. That was a long lifetime of wealth production, a long lifetime of graciousness. All right, It's not just he was a curmudgeon and a miser and a, and, a, and a Scrooge and an ugly person and mean and a hoarder. And, and, and then all of a sudden when he died, that's when people learned, you know, wow, he had millions left over and he's, he's, uh, he's blessing grandchildren. Who knew? You know, who, you know we, everyone was just in a total shock. Now this, this passage isn't describing anything like that at all. Okay? He is a good man. He's been a good man. This is a, a process that has been going on uh, through his youth, into his adulthood, into the children he raised, and to the children they raise. Okay, That's why it's intergenerational. It's over a long period of time. And so in the process then comes the goodness and the generosity and the willingness to share and the things that the Scriptures speak to on this, on this basis. The good man works, produces, and blesses others on an intergenerational scope. 
And assuming, of course, that he raised his children to have the same norms and standards that he has, well then ideally then, in all things being biblical and all things being, being, being great, then those sons as well, and married daughters and so forth, that next generation, they're doing the same thing. They are absolutely doing the same thing. But, but it's just they're a generation later, right? They're now raising their children and those, those grandchildren have not yet reached the point that you know, they're marrying and having their own families and raising their own children. So um, this is what we're talking about with these three generations. And I don't think that's accidental. Uh, even going back to Bible times when you, know, you, could, you were living centuries pre, pre-flood, they were living uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years and you could have nine generations simultaneously. Um, even, even in that state, even in that state, uh, there's still a point that's made at uh, the end of Genesis 4 that I just, I just, I mull on it, I chew on it, I meditate on it, I pray about it, I wonder about it. A day's going to come and I'm going to teach uh, Genesis verse by verse and, and I'm going to have to understand something about Genesis 4.26. Um, verse 25, we know Genesis 4 is where Cain murders Abel. This is a side trip, so just work with me. Uh, Genesis 4 is, a, is Cain murders Abel, right? But at the end of that chapter, one final son is born to Adam and Eve. Okay? Now they had other sons and daughters, we know that. Um, but nevertheless, in, in chapter 4, all we know about is Adam and Eve, I mean, is Cain and Abel. And, um, and, and clearly, they're adult sons. Because uh, <clears throat> Abel was a keeper of flocks, Cain was a tiller of the ground. And, and so they're adult sons with careers, okay? with, with work endeavors, shall we say. And it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought an, uh, of the firstlings of his flock. Okay, They're adult sons. This is not Adam's flock that Abel's a little kid that's working in his dad's flock. Abel's an adult son. Cain's an adult son. They're married. They have wives. They have their sisters. They're married. They have children. Okay, Because it's not Adam's flock, it's Abel's flock. And uh, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. And anyway, we know what happens here. And and so uh, Cain is driven away, and um, he's all worried about well, whoever finds me, you know, because it's more than just four people on the planet right now. Um, anyway, so we get to the end of the chapter, and it says in verse twenty-five, Adam had relations with his wife again. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, you know what does that mean? Does that mean, man, it's been years? Okay, no. But what it does mean, I believe, that all the children they had, they were done. They had they had finished having all the children they were going to have. And so, when you read about the generations of Adam, and you get more of that in in Genesis five, that you know he lived eight hundred years after he became the father of Seth and had other sons and daughters. But the, the idea of Seth being appointed as the replacement, as, the, as the, the identified replacement, I think that's significant. So Adam had relations with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
And so clearly, Seth is the replacement for Abel. And it's a significant birth. It's not just, oh, you know, they're having married life and they're going to have 80 more kids anyway, but uh, it just happens that this is the next one that she births after. No, this is a very significant replacement after the death of, of Abel. All right? So that's my theory anyway. I believe that, that they were done. They had produced all the children they were going to have, that Cain and Abel were adult sons, their other children are adult sons, and then uh, Seth is then given as a replacement, as an appointed replacement. All right. Whether that's true or not doesn't change uh, verse 26. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. All right, so now we have three generations, and that's the point, that's the purpose of my side trip. We have Adam, Seth, Enosh. We now have three generations, okay? And with three generations, with a father and a son, and a son who has himself become a father, that's the formula. That's the, that's the paradigm, if you will. Ooh, that's a fancy term. Uh, but you have a paradigm with a father, a son, a son who has also become a father. And on that basis then, with three generations, we're told, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? And that haunts me. <laughs> that is an expression that I've been puzzling about for probably longer than I've been ordained, uh, for a long, long time, you know. What, what kept Adam from calling upon the name of the Lord before he had a, a son? What kept Seth from calling upon the name of the Lord? What kept Adam and Seth together from calling upon the name of the Lord? Why was it that it was not until three generations now do we have the beginning of calling upon the name of the Lord? I think this is an expression of intergenerational worship, intergenerational um, spirituality walking together as companions walking together um, in the fear of the Lord. Okay? So just jot that verse down and chew on it. You can chew with me. I'm not saying we'll have answers in the next 25 years, but uh, chew with me on this because this, when we go back to Proverbs 13 and we see the companions and we see the walk together with, okay? We're not just walking together with siblings or walking together with people roughly our same age, but we're walking together with a generation before us, one or more, and the generation after us, one or more, all right? And as long as we have three generations minimum, I believe that as a lampstand we can operate in this intergenerational scope, all right? That makes sense? You know what I'm talking about with intergenerational scope? And I love that. I love being a, a small enough church to do that. I would hate to be some kind of monstrosity somewhere where they, they compartmentalize everybody. And they're going to put all the college age in this area here so they can you know, do the, the, the dating matchmaking thing. And, and, and uh, they put all the, the uh, older people here that, that like singing hymns and piano music. And then they can put the younger rock and rollers over here and they can do all this other stuff. And, uh, and they, they compartmentalize everybody into your box, into your, into your uh, compartment. And that's how uh, they're going to match up everybody in their small groups and whatever, blah, 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 blah. But the point is, though, if we are one complete body in Christ, then I, wanna, I, want, to, uh, I want to glean from older brothers and sisters that already have 
adult children that, that are going through that testing, that know about those prayers, that can, uh, can struggle alongside in, in the struggle. See? Anyway, uh, activities there. So, um, back to Proverbs 13. And that was just a side trip to show you the three generations of Adam and Seth and Enosh. And on that basis, beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, I think is a uh, significant corporate worship application. Okay? Corporate worship application. All right. Um, But back to Proverbs 13 then. The good man works, produces, and blesses others on an intergenerational scope. He's going to be leaving an inheritance to his children's children because in the, the plan of God, in operating in, under principles of wisdom, he has structured his work life, his finances, his, uh, his political life, his economic life, all of that uh, is, is being blessed. And it's being blessed by God because he's using God's standards. He's using God's standards. Okay, Whereas the wicked man, on the other hand, he's not. He is blowing it like you can't believe. Uh, and there's uh, God uh, uh, redistributes that wealth on a very interesting <laughs> basis, all right? Uh, he's, he's earning it, and he might be getting filthy rich, but why? Where's that money going to go when he's gone? If he's, if he's just living it up and, and having fun and, and uh, doing all this stuff, I'll get to him next under subpoint two. Let's start here with the good man, though. Um, a concept we had earlier in chapter 11, Proverbs 11.25. Uh, you might recall the aspect here on generosity. And um, kind of combines with verses 24 and 25, actually. Uh, verse 24, there is one who scatters yet increases all the more. You know, the more you give, the more you seem to have. How does that work? Because you're gracious and God honors grace. There is one who withholds what is justly due, yet it results only in want. And he's, uh, he doesn't have God's standards on, on money, and, he, and yet uh, he doesn't have the capacity to enjoy what God is blessing him with. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. And this is what we have when you are grace-oriented to finances, when you're grace-oriented to, and in more than finances, grace-oriented to everything, in your volunteer time, in your service, in your, in your uh, ministries and effects, in your work of love, you are just scattering and scattering and sowing abundantly. When you give generously, you are sowing generously, you're uh, reaping generously. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 8. And so we have it there. Um, he who withholds grain, verse 26 of, of chapter 11, the people will curse him, but blessing will be upon the head of him who sells it. And so there's three verses there, 24, 25, 26, all dealing with generosity, being grace-oriented in uh, our finances. Chapter 19 and verse 17, also here, Proverbs nineteen seventeen. And you'll notice um, there's other. This this too is a is a passage that speaks of multiple generations and and um, aspects there. Uh, verse fifteen, uh, fourteen. You see, 
Well, there's 13 with a foolish son uh, and a contentions of a wife that are a constant dripping. Um, verse 14, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Um, we'll deal with that when we get that far. I use that in my wedding ceremonies. Verse 15, laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Uh, verse 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. You ever given the Lord a loan? <laughs> okay. Well, it's just an expression, but understand your generosity, the God of grace sees that. And so you could think of it in this way um, that you know, you're, you're just loaning it to the Lord. And uh, when, when the Lord repays that loan, do you think, uh, how do you think the Lord's going to repay that loan? Because you were gracious to the poor. <clears throat> he will repay him for his good deed. Discipline your son while there is hope. <laughs> All right. We'll get to that as well. In fact, that's one of my verses for um, the parallel to verse 24 of chapter 13. So we got that coming up. That's subpoint C. I'll get ahead of myself. Um, so the good man works, produces, and blesses others generously. I should put generously in there. Generously blesses others on an intergenerational scope. The final example on this is Proverbs 22.9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. And so there it is, generous. All right. So uh, that's on the one hand, and this is what God would have for us to do. This is the good man. He's leaving an inheritance to his children's children. And you'll notice that spirit of generosity did not damage him. Uh, it, didn't, uh, it didn't hurt him. It didn't impact what he was able to leave to his children. Okay, Remember the, the knucklehead that didn't marry Ruth? Okay, Why didn't he marry Ruth? He was the nearer kinsman to Boaz. But the excuse he gave was he, his concern for his own inheritance. He, the, the excuse he gave, he was all ready to scarf up the land because, wow, you know, extra, extra acreage and he could work that and make it productive and get in, extra income uh, until he learned about Ruth and, oh, wait a minute, I have to raise up a child to Elimelech's name? You, you know what it costs to put a kid through college these days? You know what it costs to raise, I've got to raise a kid that's not even going to be my kid? You know, who wants a part of that? And he said, I ha he, his concern, if you go back and read that in, in, in Ruth 4, the concern was for his own inheritance. He wanted to be able to leave an inheritance to his, uh, you know, greedy offspring or whatever. <laughs> you, just, you wonder if this is his attitude, what's his kid's attitude going to be? And what's his grandkid's attitude going to be? And how does, how does the poor attitude get worse and worse with each passing generation? And how does a grace attitude get better and better with each generation? See, Anyway, so there's the, uh, the illustration on that. Um, Second Corinthians likewise, I think, tells you that your, your generosity will never be harmed. Okay? Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. Your, or, and even more than that, 6 through 11. How about that? 2 Corinthians 9, the chapter on grace giving. See, we have it in Proverbs as wisdom from the Old Testament. We have it in 2 Corinthians as, as church age application. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's parallel to this, this, uh, those Proverbs we were just looking at in Proverbs 11, Proverbs 19. Okay, Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. This is the grace approach, and this is what God loves. And God is able, see what it says here, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything. How many of these words are there in this verse? The all and every, the absolutes here. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. There's five terms of everything in that one verse. So you won't get hurt for being gracious. You won't be hurt for applying grace principles because God is able to make all grace abound. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply, notice, and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. For you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So if you want to be a good liberal, biblically speaking, that's it right there. That means you've got to be grace-oriented. You've got to be living in the grace of God, and you express that grace and watch how God enriches you in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So you don't, uh, you don't lose when you apply grace principles when you do so for right reasons. It's a win-win every time. So that's the good man. Works, produces, and blesses others on an intergenerational scope. Secondly, the sinner lives only for self. Volitionally blessing nobody. Yet is ultimately overruled by the sovereignty of God. And This is, this is a, a curious thing to me. Because God does not coerce the volition. And yet he can, he can control the circumstances, what we call the overruling will of God, the directive will, permissive will, and overruling will of God. And uh, you get the, the Scrooge McDuck that, that is, is hoarding his wealth, that's not living in grace, that's living in total defiance. And uh, the overruling will of God has an amazing thing, not to coerce that man's volition. That man could end up, Jesus called him a fool and he died that night and, and all of his things were, were redistributed as they should have been under grace. <laughs> and instead they were redistributed under post-mortem uh, overruling will of God. <laughs> okay, And it's interesting to me. Before we get to that though, let's understand some principles here. The sinner lives only for self. Romans 14, 7 and 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Okay? And, and, and by the way, we need to again remind ourselves, when the Bible's using the term sinner, what's it saying? Because we're all sinners. Right? Well, even, even a saved one could be reckoned as a sinner. And what, what sinner represents is, I agree, it's probably an unsaved one. But if he is saved, he's not walking in the Word of God. Okay, He's not a disciple. Uh, uh, when Jesus talks about eating with tax collectors and sinners, the sinner is the one that does not live his life under biblical standards. 
doesn't even try, doesn't even care to. Okay? He's just living for self. He's living in the world and for the world. It would never cross his mind uh, about, you know, thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not fornicate or thou shalt not any of that. He's not living his life on that norms and standard. Not at all. That's the sinner. And the sinner does live only for self. That's the unbeliever before he gets saved. And for a believer, if you're not living in the Word of God, then that's you too. Because if you're not conformed, if you're not transformed by the Word of God, you're conformed to this age. And believers can be just as big of sinners as unbelievers. So Romans 14, 7. Just, this is just a reminder. You should be aware of these already. Romans 14, 7. Not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. Understand that? That's what we used to do when we were unbelievers. We were constantly living for ourselves. So no more. No more. Because now we're saved. Now we're in Christ. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And uh, we'll have more on that because clearly that's a Philippians uh, 1 application, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. So, uh, so there it is. So, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians. And this is a fun one because it talks about the living dead. The Bible knew all about the living dead long before Hollywood ever started making zombie movies. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And uh, verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. But we are made manifest to God. I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. And it comes down here, and if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. You know, you might think I'm crazy, but that's fine. I'm going to live according to the Word of God. <laughs> call, me, call me crazy, but I'm, I'm living for the Lord. And for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live, notice now, might no longer live for themselves. You see that? So they who live might no longer, that is, back when they didn't live yet, you know, when you were an unbeliever, this is what you used to do. You used to live for yourself. You lived for yourself back in the day. Remember that? That was before you lived. But now you really live. Because now you live in the Lord. So um, he died for all so that they who live, that is with a living human spirit being born again, might no longer live. Back when they had a dead human spirit they still lived. But they lived for themselves. And Paul here says, no more, that's enough. No longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He didn't die and rise again so that you could keep on whatever. You know, plug in your top ten favorite sins. Whatever. He didn't die and rise again so that you could live in that self, selfish uh, life you used to live in. No. We live for him. For him who died and rose again on their behalf. I don't know how you can get more plain than that. That's, that's, that's as blunt as you can get. So the sinner lives only for self. And since he's living only for self, who does he volitionally bless? 
Nobody. Not even himself, actually. Because if you're just totally oriented to self, you're not blessing yourself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You're not blessing yourself. If you're living for self, you're harming yourself. Volitionally blessing nobody. Yet it is ultimately overruled by the sovereignty of God. So when we're looking at Proverbs 13, we're, we, the, the righteous man has an inheritance for his grandchildren, his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. How does that get redirected? What happens to his grandchildren? Probably doesn't have any. What happens to his children? May not even have any. If he does, they're in worse shape than he is. Does that make sense? Okay? And so if... Uh, do we have a problem? Alright. Well, we've got a deacon who could deal with it. Alright. So, um, but, but think about it. Think about today, in our day and age, if we have... I can close in prayer if I need to, is there something? Okay. Well, then you can stop looking at him. <laughs> Classroom discipline. Don't you love doctrine? You know, I grew up under RB theme, and 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 his disciple was Ken Jensen and John Eichmann. I tell you, those guys, they were tough. They were old school, angry Germans. <laughs> And if you, if you weren't eyes front, if you let yourself get distracted by, uh, you know, Sandy knows what I'm talking about. Her dad, same thing, old school, German, doctrinal pastor. All right. I'm a softie. All right. So here we are. We're almost done. Um, we're talking about this, uh, this wicked guy who's not leaving an inheritance to children, not leaving an inheritance to grandchildren, and we're assuming he has them. You know, I mean, if you are really into self, then who has time for children? You know, let's just pursue a lifestyle that's not procreative. Let's, uh, let's choose uh, this lifestyle of whatever that's uh, emphasizing all the, the fun and games and travel and wealth and food and great, you know, everything else. Children, are you kidding me? That's a drag on my fun. I don't want any part of that. Okay, and of course... And the, the homosexual thing, they're not producing any children. And, and isn't that interesting? You get a whole uh, segment of, of our culture now that makes money hand over fist, left and right, and they make all kinds of money. And, uh, and well, they're not raising kids. What are they spending money on? You know? And so they're making it, and uh, it's interesting. But where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? Uh, are their children going to get it? Are their grandchildren going to get it? Who's going to get it when they're gone? And isn't it interesting how the grace of God can take it and can redirect it where it needs to be? How the grace of God can take it. Gary Williams had his application on this. He, he was uh, working for a, a total um, moron, really. A guy that spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars on um, wine racks and things and and, and, and got the whole thing done. It was picture perfect. Take a picture. This is gorgeous. 
And then he changed his mind when the whole project was done and said, you know what, I want a different kind of wood instead of that. I mean, it was, it was done. And Gary said, you're, 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 you're crazy, this is done. And he says, well, start over, I don't care, it's just money. And so, okay. And so he took it out and built new ones and made even more money left and right, you know, hand over fist. And Gary said, you know what? The grace of God is amazing because this unbeliever Bible hater um, was blessing Gary in, uh, in this way. And I think it's a marvelous illustration of what we're seeing here. The wealth of a sinner is stored up for the righteous. You know, and so you get this the, these, these fools with more money than sense and they're throwing money willy-nilly all over the place. Well, where is that going? And how, how does God use that to bless His children in different ways? And, uh, and, and, and a lot of times it's, it's the protection of God because the prosperity test is so hard to pass and it's so much worse than the adversity test and it's much better to let these fools be filthy rich rather than a believer that's going to get ruined by something like that, right? And so protecting his children from harm, uh, which I'm sure is why God hasn't let me win the lottery yet, because the, <laughs> the damage I would do to myself and my marriage and my family and my church would be spectacular, right? So God says no. But he lets these fools, because they're ruined anyway, have all this abundance, and then he allocates it in his grace and in powerful ways. And I love that. God is so sovereign in charge of, of all these things. And so um, more illustrations of this if you need it. Proverbs 28.8. Proverbs 28.8. I think these are good verses too. Uh, you know, could you work for a company if the boss wasn't saved? Could you work for a business if they weren't uh, biblical in scope? Sure, I could take money from an unbeliever. Not The church won't take money from an unbeliever, but I can work for an unbeliever. Okay. Because um, you get into Ephesians and Colossians and the Bible says, you know, slaves work as unto the Lord. And not only for bosses that are believers, but for bosses that are cruel. Anyway, Proverbs 28 uh, 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. So here you've got a wicked man who's just a total snake who is through uh, extortion and through wrong. This is not legitimate banking and legitimate interest. This is usury. This is uh, the the greed of of, uh, the loan shark approach to victimizing people. Interest and usury. And so if you want to use underhanded methods, if you want to hurt somebody else so that you get ahead, well, guess what? Those uh, profits are being redirected. Scripture says that you're gathering for him who is gracious to the poor. Again, this is God's sovereignty at work that uh, overrules and redistributes on a grace basis to his children. I find that interesting as well. Um, Job 27 verses 16 and 17 Job 27 the earliest book of the Bible all this wisdom that comes from 
patriarchal times, comes back to the patriarchs and the wisdom that they understood. <laughs> and, and then too, I mean, if you ever want to do an essay, write an essay on socialism, you want to write an essay on uh, wealth redistribution and whatever, fairness, um, as if there's such a thing as fairness. Um, but go ahead, write an essay, use biblical principles, and then ask yourself this. Let's say uh, all of the wildest dreams are solved and we're able to take all the wealth of, of the world, distribute it evenly, so all 7 billion people on the planet have precisely the equal amount of, of cash on hand. How long is that going to last? What's going to happen in a year, five years, ten years, ten years down the road? Where will the distribution of those funds be? Because there's going to be foolish people and wise people. There's going to be believers operating under wisdom principles of Scripture. And there's going to be fools operating under self, uh, selfishness and, and idolatry. And uh, what happens after that? Okay, And then you find that the fools are going to start grumbling because they have less than the, the believers operating under wisdom. In any event. No charge by the way, it's extra credit, no charge for the socialism uh, exhortation. Uh, Job 27 um, verse 13 uh, here is a paragraph beginning um, this is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword and his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. I mean, the, the damage that you do to the children and to the grandchildren, I mean, it's just it's horrendous. And uh, that lifestyle or that death style is just, it's unstable. And it gets worse and worse to the third and to the fourth generation. That's why God limits it to four generations. The, the damage just gets worse and worse and worse, and he only tolerates to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate him. Uh, his survivors will be buried because of the plague, and their widows will not be able to weep. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. All right? Isn't that something? How does this happen? And uh, so, you know, but we understand, we're not, what are we saying here? We're not saying that if you're a believer, you have the right to just storm into an unbeliever's house and take his stuff. We're not saying that, okay? But a day is coming and he's going to lose it, okay? A day is coming and the most powerful uh, uh, Hollywood producer is going to be expelled in shame and lose everything. He's going to lose his business, he's going to lose his name, he's going to lose his wealth, he's going to lose everything and probably go to prison. All right? Um, when you're reaping the wind, you're going to, or sowing the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And this is, who's going who's gonna to have this wealth now? Okay, so um, he has built his house like a spider's web. <laughs> How long does that last? or as a hut which the watchman has made. He lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it is no longer. And so I think this is what's going to happen. He's going to die, and uh, the wealth goes away. Uh, so that's Job 27. We also have Ecclesiastes. Remember, we don't build our doctrine on Ecclesiastes all by itself, but uh, when there are principles contained in Ecclesiastes that parallel uh, Proverbs and Job and Psalms and Jesus, then um, 
we're okay with it. Ecclesiastes 2, coming from a human viewpoint perspective. Verse 18, um, here's, here's a carnal believer with a lot of hate. And um, he just throws up his hands and he says, nothing's worth it. It's all vanity. Everything's vanity. And um, you know, it's an interesting uh, chapter. It's an inter- interesting book. Verse 16, uh, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything was futility and striving after wind. That's not a healthy attitude. None of us should have that attitude. And then it goes on, verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. You know, what's the point? Who cares if I worked and made, you know, X number of dollars last year or the year before, over a lifetime? For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. (laughs) You know, what if you're the wisest man that ever lived? Your son's a knucklehead, okay? Well, compared to you. Who's going to measure up to you when you're the the wisest man ever in the history of the earth. Your son will be a disappointment. But guaranteed. All right. <laughs> um, leaving it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. And, and we see this too. We see, you know, multi-billionaires and, and kids that grow up as trust fund babies and they don't know how to work. They don't know the value of the wealth that they've been given because they can't appreciate the value of what it took to accumulate the wealth that they were given. So therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. And he just throws his hands up. Verse 21, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with them, that is with knowledge and skill. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? So again, that whole thing about under the sun means he's not thinking eternally, he's not thinking over the sun, he's not thinking in heaven, he's not thinking for eternity. He's just thinking in temporal details here and now. Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. See, if you're, just, if you're an employee, you can go home and not think about work till you get back the next day. But if you're the boss and you go home and you're still thinking about it and you're working the late hours and you, you're, you're burning the oil and you're... Um, you're appreciating the value of the, uh, of the endeavor. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. <laughs> really? Is that all there is in life? This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So finally then, uh, yeah. Verse 26, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
So it's like at the end of the chapter he finally works himself back into maybe being in fellowship again and maybe thinking again, wait a minute, this comes from God. Remind myself, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. There's the redirection again, the redistribution again. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. All right. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Psalm 39, 6. It's a Davidic psalm. Possibly the uh, basis for which uh, Solomon learned it and then wrote it in Proverbs or uh, Ecclesiastes and so forth. But here's David's composition. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Well, there it is. We're we're just a breath. We are, uh, as it says here, uh, verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man is at his best as a mere breath or a phantom. Every man walks about as a phantom. And so you amass riches and what have you accumulated at the end? You're not taking it with you. Who's getting it when you're gone? All right. Uh, and then the Lord in Luke 12, 20 and 21. Of course you knew we were going to come here, didn't you? Luke 12. This is not a man that's leaving an inheritance to his children and his children's children. Because he's rich to himself, not towards God. And um, verse 16, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began, and we're going to see that. The land is productive. God designed it to reflect him. God is productive. The land is productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store all my crops? And the idea of being generous never crosses his mind. The idea of, well, let's just store what I need to store, what I can store, and then let's share and be generous never crosses his mind. So he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I want it all. Not one bit is to be shared. All my grain and all my goods. And I said to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. No mention of a wife, no mention of children, no mention of grandchildren, no mention of any of that. It's just me and what I got. And what I got is uh, going to take care of me. I'm going to eat, drink, and be happy. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because that's all there is in life. He's living the Ecclesiastes lifestyle. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? How does the probate court deal with that? There's no, there's no heir, there's no son, there's no, I mean, what are they going to do? Who gets this? He doesn't know. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
All right. See, I believe uh, we can answer where it's going to go. We can answer where it's going to go because of Proverbs 13, 22, and because of Job uh, uh, 27, 16. It's going to go to the righteous. God is going to redirect it. God is going to find a way in which these funds, this food, these, this wealth is going to bless in grace believers that need blessing in grace. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, next week, we'll come back. The best circumstances for the working poor are found in a land of freedom and justice. And, uh, you know, the, the earth is productive. Anyone willing to work can feed himself. And, um, you know, subsistence living may be humble, may be meager, may be the bare minimum, but if we have food and covering with this, we shall be content. And um, we'll, we'll talk about this. The working poor, not the non-working poor. The uh, provision under Mosaic law for uh, the distribution of food was in the fields to go out there and, and get it. And we'll talk about that as well. But anyway, that, that's coming up. And then uh, parental discipline, that's the spare the rod, spoil the child thing. And, uh, and then appetite satisfaction. But speaking of appetite satisfaction, there's a function here at 11 o'clock. So I'm going to close in prayer and we can proceed. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might apply Proverbs biblically and avoid Ecclesiastes in uh, um, just the tragedy of human viewpoint. So Father, make your will known and work in us that which is pleasing in your sight so that we can be gracious and generous to others, to, uh, to our church family, to our extended family, to uh, our parents and the older generation, to our children and grandchildren and the younger generations. In all things, Father, might your Son be uh, exalted and glorified. And I thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.